Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Episode 4, Global Dispatches, going strong. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. We have a great show for you today. I speak with Arsalan Iftikhar, who's better known on the internet as the Muslim guy. Uh, He is a civil rights lawyer, an activist, a media commentator who focuses on issues affecting the Muslim American community. It's a great conversation. And, you know, I think one thing that it really gets to is that there is this... deep level of hostility towards Muslim Americans that I think is something that, you know, we non-Muslim Americans simply don't get. I mean, this hostility comes from official sources, it comes from the general public, but it's real, it's profound, uh, it's affecting uh, American politics, uh, potentially American foreign policy. All of that and more is discussed in our conversation. So have a listen. Enjoy and send me your feedback on Twitter or uh, via email and let me know what you think of this podcast, what you think of me, my rants, my questions, uh, the questions that I might have missed, uh, questions you wished I had asked, all of the above. All right, here's Arsalan. Enjoy. I know you will. So we met, uh, I was thinking about this, in 2006 on the beautiful shores of Lake Como. Yes, uh, we did. At this conference. Uh, really, that was that was an amazing, it was a great conference. It was about international migration, and it was put on by the Rockefeller Foundation, the German Marshall Fund. But better than the conference was the setting, I'd say. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, can't, beat, you can't beat Lake Como, Italy, right? Yeah, right. And I got to meet interesting people like you. And, and vice versa. Uh, well, and, and you know, and since then, I've been following your uh, your work and your rise, and uh, you're you're doing great work, and you're blowing up, and it's great to to follow uh, you gain the attention that I think your your work deserves. Well, I, I don't know if you want to use the words Muslim and blowing up in the same sentence. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you said it, not me. Yeah. Uh, um, so you know, I follow your your Twitter feed, and I follow your uh, website, themuslimguy.com, mm-hmm. pretty closely, and it's like a it's like a, a constant stream of outrages and acts of ignorance and discrimination that you detail, uh, you know, you know, pretty well. And some of these are, you know, I, w- I would say they're funny or humorous, if not for the fact that they come from a place of profound ignorance and fear. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of that that mop bucket in Tennessee. Right. Uh, what was that? Oh, I, I read that on your site. What was that? What was that confusion? What was that story? With, with the mosque in Tennessee? The, no, no, the, the mop bucket. Uh, the mop oh, bucket. the mop bucket, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> The mosque so in Tennessee is actually legitimately like depressing and horrifying. But right, you know, exactly. can talk about that. The mop bucket's a little more... It, it, was, more, it was more absurd, yeah. yeah. It, was, um, you know, it was a story from um, a little while ago. It was in March 2013. Um, there apparently in... Now, there were news reports that um, inside the Tennessee State Capitol, um, there was something uh, in in a side closet near a bathroom that uh, resembled a Muslim foot bath, as some Republican lawmakers uh, had decided uh, that it was. And so, of course, you know, they raised concerns with the administration of the state capitol to, to make 
make sure that these were not, in fact, Muslim foot baths, uh, but they were actually and actually ended up being uh, janitor mop sinks. And, but you know, just the absurdity of that story: a, because it made you know the media in Tennessee, but b, because you know there is such a you know seething uh, Islamophobia and uh, anti-Muslim sentiment in this country that you know anything associated with Islam or Muslims uh, is seen as um, you know inherently bad to to certain aspects of American society. So yeah, the Tennessee mop sink story uh, was just one of the latest uh, absurd stories that we've seen so far. But, you know, in Tennessee, I mean, I, this, this sort of happens everywhere, but Tennessee, at least from what I understand, and, and uh, I'm talking about the, the sort of firebombing, the bombing of, of the, or the, not the bombing, the, the burning down of the mosque in Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro, right. I don't even quite know how to pronounce it. But Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro. I, actually, uh, I actually gave a speech there a few months ago, oh, yeah? uh, which, was, which was very interesting. I, I spoke at Middle Tennessee State University, which is located in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, many people know the name Murfreesboro because it sort of exemplified uh, the recent surge in the last few years of what we know as the, quote, anti-mosque movements mm-hmm. uh, around America, which, of course, started with the, you know, 2010 debate over the, quote-unquote, Ground Zero Mosque yeah. in Lower Manhattan, which of course was neither at Ground Zero nor a mosque, but uh, really sort of started details. Um, details. So I'll, I'll get into that. You know, which started a lit- <laughs> yeah, litany no, no. of of uh, anti-mosque movements, copycats, yeah. essentially yeah. Across, across the country. And Murfreesboro, Tennessee, sort of came to represent sort of as the uh, the epicenter of that, which was also seen in places like Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and Temecula, California, and other places around the even the suburbs of Chicago uh, saw anti-mosque movements. Has has the mosque in Murfreesboro uh, been rebuilt? Is it yeah, it, it's okay. been it's been rebuilt. It has officially opened. Uh, it opened for Ramadan last year. I, I believe they had their first prayers, uh, prayer services in the mosque there. Um, you know, so that's good. But you know, obviously, we, we still have a long way to go in terms of uh, you know, uh, you know, reaching out to uh, our brothers and sisters of uh, of other faiths uh, around the country. So I wanted to ask you this. Have you noticed a uptick in these sorts of, of incidents following the Boston bombing? Yeah, you know, that's the million-dollar question, Mark. I, I've been asked that. Um, you know, I'm always asked that whenever we, we see any sort of um, – either terrorist attack or failed terrorist attack. You know, we saw this similarly with the failed Times Square bombing uh, with Faisal Shahzad, with yeah. the failed underwear bomber, uh, Omar Farouk Abdul Muttalib, uh on Christmas Day a few years ago aboard a plane to, uh, heading for Detroit. Yeah. So whenever we – and, of course, the Fort Hood shooting with Nidal Hassan uh, as well in Texas. Uh, you know, whenever we see acts of terrorism or failed acts of terrorism, most of these were failed, um, you know, we do uh, see an uptick in anti-Muslim uh, um, discrimination. A few days after the Boston bombing, there was a Palestinian woman uh, who wears the hijab, the headscarf, uh, in Boston, with her walking with her child, who was accosted uh, and assaulted by a white male. Uh, the day after the Boston bombing in uh, New York City, there was a Muslim man leaving a mosque who was followed uh, by a man carrying a gun. Uh, you know, who who shouted anti-Muslim slurs at him. Um, you know, there was recently a Washington, D.C. cabbie uh, taxi driver who actually happened to be a U.S. Army veteran who who actually had his jaw broken uh, by yeah, I a saw that video. That was a crazy uh, video. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this, yeah, this, this is real. Like and drunken, like, 
jerk in the back of his yeah, well, no, he, he, he apparently was a CEO of a company. Yeah, which is a defense you know, contractor. Yeah, which is which is unbelievable. Yeah. But um, you know, these sorts of things uh, they do happen, and and we've seen this happen, you know, ever since September 11th, and you know, we see peaks and valleys. But you know, whenever there's sort of global watershed events, whether it's the you know war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the Bali Madrid London bombings, the Danish cartoon controversy, the Ground Zero Mosque, all these sorts of things, you know, tend to uh, you know show themselves um, rather in an ugly fashion uh, in anti-Muslim hate crimes and discrimination. So I just talk, talking about the the Boston incident for a second. So you know, I was was watching that. I was following a lot of the commentary uh, in those mm-hmm. sort of several days, a few days uh, after the bombing, but before the suspects were identified. And right. it seemed as if um, people sort of on the left were kind of secretly hoping that it was a sort of right wing Timothy McVeigh sort of inspired you know, uh, uh, perpetrator, whereas people on the right were sort of secretly hoping, I think, that it was someone inspired by like, radical Islam. Right. Um, I mean, why do you think sort of those, th- that, that ideologic, well, uh, first of all, do you agree, was that sort of your impression at the time? And why do you think uh, that, that it, is the it, case? Well, yeah, to a certain degree, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, we deal in a 24-7 media news cycle, and obviously those news cycles are shaped by the narratives of events that are occurring around us. So how are you uh, sort of reacting to this? When, when well, I react, I, I actually, I, I wrote uh, I wrote an opinion editorial in the Seattle Times uh, that was called, Please God, Don't Let It Be a Muslim, yeah. um, which basically sort of tried to encapsulate the anxiety that American Muslims feel whenever any act of mass murder happens. So, you know, when the Newtown, Connecticut school shooting happened, I thought, please don't let it be a Muslim. When the Aurora, Colorado, Dark Knight, Batman movie massacre killer happened, we prayed that, you know, it wasn't a Muslim. Of course, in those cases, it was, you know, two white dudes. And so, you know, we never heard the term terrorism used there, especially in the Aurora, Colorado shooting. Um, You know, but it it seems, you know, whenever it's a brown Muslim dude or with a foreign-sounding name, um, you know, it's going to have the term terrorism uh, pretty much, you know, associated with it from the beginning. Beginning, it's uh, it would be interesting to note, you know, whenever um, you know if if it were a, a you know if it was a, if it did happen to be a right wing, uh, you know, white American who did it, you know, would we be referring to it as an act of terrorism or would it just be some you know lone wolf crazy kook out there? You know, so, you know I, I think we'd be doing. I think we'd be calling it domestic terrorism, right? You know, as e- if, but even as if, even uh, even yeah. even then, Mark, you know, it's really interesting because obviously I deal with these issues in the media. There is a there is a double standard in American media when it comes to terrorism. You'll remember that uh, not too long ago there was um, there was a white supremacist named Wade Michael Page who walked into a uh, Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and slaughtered six people in cold blood. I mean, he was you know he had a race war ideology, but we never saw the term terrorism being used for that attack. And then I actually wrote a CNN column saying that we need to call it an act of domestic terrorism because I assure you, if a brown man walked into a white church in Wisconsin and killed six people in cold blood, they would have called it an act of terrorism regardless of whether he had a political ideology or not. And so, you know, even in the terminology that we use, uh, you know, when... um, 
you know, when it, when it's a when it's a white man committing an act of mass murder, we tend to have a double standard as opposed to when a brown Muslim person does it. We, you know, recently, you know, obviously we're we're hearing about the IRS and and their targeting of right wing conservative groups. What most people don't even know here in America is that a couple of years ago, there was a 48 year old Tea Party uh, member named Joe Stack who actually flew his single engine airplane into the IRS building in Austin, Texas. Now. I assure you that if it was a brown man who flew his plane into an IRS building in Austin, Texas, we would have shut down every IRS building in the country. Hell, we would have shut down every federal building in the country. Um, but, you know, because it was a, you know, a white guy named Joe Stack who happened to be a member of the Tea Party, nobody called the terrorism, and most Americans don't even know that it ever happened. Well, what's, I mean, you, you keep referencing race. Um, and what's interesting, though, at least with the, the Boston issues, you know, the Tsarnaevs, I mean, you can't get more Caucasian than them. Like, exactly. He's from. He's from from the caucuses, yeah. Uh, and, you know, to what extent do you think that, you know, do you think the reaction would be different if the bombers uh, were from, like, Southeast Asia? No, I, I think in this case, you know, because of the fact that, um, you know, they they were Muslim and they had foreign-sounding names, you know, these were, you know, these weren't normal, average white guys. These were white guys with names like Tamerlan Sarnayev and, and Jokar Sarnayev. So it was foreign enough, again, where, you know, the, the concept of the other was already sort of placed in the public's um, zeitgeist when, as, as you know, Mark, a few, a few days before they were ever named, you remember that CNN and other media outlets started erroneously reporting that a, quote, dark-skinned male right. had been arrested. Now, and that regardless crazy of, stuff that the New York Post put on, on their well, right, right, yeah. that high school track star. Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing. So, you know, regardless of whether these people were um, – you know, innocent or guilty, it already painted a picture in the American public's narrative that it's one of those other guys. And so, it, you know, it, it already, you know, painted that picture that it was, oh, it was one of those other guys who did it. So when it came out that these were two guys from Chechnya, even though, you know, the vast majority of Americans couldn't point out Chechnya on a map, and it seemed like overnight we had Chechnya experts, you know, coming out of the woodwork left and right, yeah. um, you know, this sort of, um, you know, the, the, the straw man had already been built. So you have been on this on on this beat for for a long time. I, I wanted to ask you or, or have you talked a little bit about sort of your story. Now, I I remember from one conversation we had that you mentioned, and I, I could be misremembering that you are a Buffalo Bills fan. <laughs> from that, can I extrapolate that you are from the Buffalo area? I am not actually. I am actually born and raised in Chicago, but for some reason when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, I, you know, I loved the Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas era of the Buffalo Bills and yeah. being the lo- loyal fool that I am, I, I've, you know, I went through four straight Super Bowl losses in a row and, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's prepared me for, for, uh, you know, a, a life of, of, of humbling. You know what? It, that's funny. The first person I interviewed there, there sort of talked about how being a Boston Red Sox fan informed her uh, foreign policy worldview for being prepared yeah, for the totally. woman. But uh, okay, so so where in uh, where in Chicago? Uh, in the western suburbs. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated to this country uh, in the early 1970s after my father finished medical school in Pakistan, and I was born and raised there. And you're, you're in the western suburbs. My wife's from yep. uh, that area, from Oak Park. Oh, really? Where? Yeah. Where? River Forest, Oak Park. My dad actually. My dad works at Oak Park Hospital. He's there a doctor. You go. There. Maybe we'll yep. maybe we'll see you at Thanksgiving sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so so 
so your your parents immigrated in the 1970s. Was there uh, from from where? From Pakistan. Right? From from Pakistan, yes. And and was there a um, what's what's like the the um, sort of standard uh, Pakistani immigrant um, sort of experience in the sense that sort of were most immigrants to the United States from Pakistan come in like the 60s and 70s? Yeah, they did, and, and most of them, like my father, were doctors, and they were engineers. They were sort of the the white collar, um, educated, you know, intelligentsia of those countries. Because back then, uh, you know, traditionally speaking, America actually has uh, more of a stricter immigration legal system than many other Western nations like Europe and Canada and things like that. And so, uh, the the first major influx of the American Muslim community, primarily from South Asia, India, Pakistan. Uh, and even the Middle East and Arab world in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were primarily uh, white-collar, uh, graduate degree-holding uh, professionals, whereas in the 90s we started to see more of the uh, blue-collar, working-class uh, immigrants come to this country. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mo- all my dad, all my friends growing up, you know, all their dads were doctors, and like any good Muslim or Jewish parents, they wanted us to be doctors as well. So I was kind of a black sheep when I became a lawyer. Yeah, I would, I would imagine. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but so your, your family, where in Pakistan uh, is your family from? They are from Lahore, which is in the Punjab. It's the second largest city in the country behind uh, Karachi. Do you, do you go back there? Do you? Uh, I do. do I, I, I went. Uh, I, uh, I went there every year growing up. I actually speak Urdu fluently. I'm actually a regular on Pakistani television, also as a global analyst. Uh, so I was actually raised bilingual, and that led me to learn French and Arabic and Farsi later in my life. So what do you think about the, the recent election results? It was interesting. Um, you know, uh, most people don't know that, uh, you know, Nawaz Sharif was elected for the third time to be prime minister because the first times went so smashingly well. Yeah. Um, you know, but it did see, you know, we saw uh, over 60, six, between 60 and 65 percent voter turnout. And, you know, Imran Khan, who is, you know, sort of the Michael Jordan of Pakistan, he's a famous world world famous cricketer, um, you know, ran for prime minister, and he did very well. Uh, he is essentially the head of the opposition party. Um, and was so, he you your know, uh, preferred candidate? He was my preferred candidate only because I, I, I know Pakistani politics like the back of my hand, and, and I know sort of the, uh, you know, corrupting influences of, you know, the the major families of the Sharifs and the Bhuttos and, uh, you know, the legacies that they've left behind. So I think that Imran Khan sort of being, you know, richer than crap, uh, you know, would sort of be above that corruption. He sort of doesn't need that fame. He doesn't need that money anymore. And so he was running on, you know, majorly, uh, primarily on an anti-corruption platform. So, you know, I think a lot of Pakistanis are hopeful to see him uh, come up in uh, the next election. That's interesting. You know, there's like a sort of almost like a cadre of um – of stars of, uh, you know, developing world countries, although Pakistan is, 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 is still obviously a developing world country who have sure. sort of come from sort of the entertainment industry. The president of uh, Haiti is a, is a famous singer, Michelle Martelli. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, and, and, uh, I know that, um, you saw Endor tried to, uh, make a, a play in yeah, for a while, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of space for entertainers to be in. Obviously we're not above that here in the United States. Uh, um, yeah. So, so, uh, so you're growing up in the western sh- suburbs of Chicago, went to high school. What I mean, did you uh, sort of experience any of this sort of discrimination that you sort of write about today? Did did sort of that animate your your outlook? Were there you know, actually, it, it was. 
No, I am actually glad that you asked that, Mark. It was actually different back then. Uh, and the reason was that there weren't many Muslims in America yet. And so we were sort of always lumped in with Indians. So people sort of assumed that we were just, we were Indians and we were probably Hindu. And my parent, my mom, you know, wears the traditional, uh, you know, Shalwar Kameez dress of Pakistan. And so I remember as a kid once we were in McDonald's and uh, these uh, group of teenage guys came up and they called my mom a dot head and I found that really odd because my mom doesn't even have a dot on her head but you know it was it was you know we were sort of just seen as brown people and you know back then in the in the in the 80s you know race relations uh, in America was still more of a black and white uh, paradigm you know we've only really shifted into the brown paradigm with you know immigration reform over the last 10 15 years and now of course the post 9/11 world so what was i guess t- tell me about that first immigration shift uh, that that first par- paradigm when did um, are, actually let, let's maybe step back are most muslims in america from sort of southeast asia south asia that's a very good question. So, uh, you yeah, know, that's like gen- the, the scope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So, as you know, the, the United States Census does not actually allow by law to ask for religious preferences. And mm-hmm. so when you're looking at religious denominations in this country, it's very hard to get accurate numbers. And so when it comes to the American Muslim community, uh, on the low end, uh, people say there are about 2 million. On the high end, people say 7 to 8 million. Now, out of these 2 to 8 million American Muslims in America today, about a quarter, about 25% of them are actually uh, African American. They're indigenous to this country, born and raised here for generations, primarily in urban settings. Um, after that, uh, I would say most studies have shown that approximately 33%, one-third, are from South Asia, so from the Indian subcontinent of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, another 25% are of Arab descent, and the remaining 17% or so are of white, Latino, or other descent. So it's a very diverse community here in the United States. Um, you know, a lot of Americans, sadly, have, uh, you know, the, you know, misguided notion that all Arabs are Muslim and all Muslims are Arabs. It's important to note that only 18% of the Muslim world uh, is of Arab descent. I'm not an Arab. Uh, and nearly half of Arabs in this country are actually Christians. Yeah, that's what those miners who, who, Who've actually, you know, who came here at the uh, turn of the 20th century, primarily, primarily to Michigan to work in, you know, car factories, but now I've lived here for four and five generations now. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're saying in the 70s, it's when sort of there's that white collar immigration. Correct. Uh, when did the sort of the, 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 that sort of, and how did the, the more blue collar immigration occur? And so were, were there, were there policy decisions here in the U.S.? Were there, sort of, were there episodes um, in Southeast Asia or wherever that sort of inspired the more blue collar exodus? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. Um, you know, as you know from our time together, um, you know, in, in Lake Como uh, several years ago, you know, the, the immigrant, the migration experience, especially dealing with minority Muslim populations, is, you know, vastly different between uh, the European Union and the United States. Um, you know, the EU always primarily uh, historically has had a very lax immigration system uh, known as the quote-unquote guest worker program, basically um, bringing in essentially slave labor, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s from prim- primarily North Africa, um, basically to work 
you know, for low wages, thinking that these people would eventually go back to their home countries. Now, 60 years later, you know, you have fourth and fifth, sixth generation, um, you know, French Muslims of Algerian or Moroccan or Tunisian descent, you know, who are feeling uh, you know, really marginalized and they have to deal with their own integration issues. We here in the United States, you know, again, because America has historically had uh, stricter immigration laws, again, in the 60s and 70s, we, you know, we tended to attract more of the white-collar educated, you know, doctors, engineers, accountants, uh, people with college uh, degrees and things like that to come and settle here. And then it really was, um, you know, when when those when that generation of, you know, intelligentsia sort of became settled here in this country for 10, 15, 20 years, they started, you know, hosting and, you know, sponsoring their families for green cards. So, you know, their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers would come to this country. They might not be as well educated as they were. So then, you know, they would come and they would drive taxis or open convenience stores or working gas stations. And, you know, it sort of just became a residual effect of the uh, initial influx of American Muslims. But that, you know, that comparison, I think, between sort of the European immigration experience and the American Muslim immigration experience is something I've thought a lot about, Um, you know, and and as you said, you know, in in Europe there, because of this initial guest worker idea, there was Mm -hmm. almost the formation of like a permanent underclass. Absolutely. In in, uh, countries like the Netherlands and and France and also their sort of national ideologies, I think, are less... um, forgiving to immigrants, frankly, than our sort of nationalist, our national sort of melting pot ideology. And I think it's fair to say that that gave rise to a fairly disgruntled generation of of alienated youth, Um, some of which, uh, some of whom sort of turned to petty crime, some of whom turned to, uh, you know, radical Islam and, and have sort of become, you know, terrorists. And I wonder, uh, I always, I had always thought that here in the United States, just our, our sort of ideology, our, our sort of outlook on immigration, because it's so different, provided a bulwark against that. But I'm starting to sort of doubt that, um, doubt that premise a little bit. For one, you know, looking at that, like, again, the Sarnayev brothers, the uh, Faisal, you have these, these uh, kids in Minnesota going over to Somalia now. I'm wondering if you're seeing that shift at all or if it's something that maybe I'm inventing. I I think you're kind of inventing it, Mark. Sure, you're, sure. You you and Talk I are friends. So, no, I mean it you know it's one of those I mean it's it's you know if you're going to take one or two or even five or 10 examples and sort of extrapolate that on an entire demographic group then you know there's really no there's no demographic group in America today that is without any sort of guilt or blame. What I tend to liken it to is street gangs. You know, in America, we understand street gangs, right? There's a history. There's, you know, they've been around for over a century. And what they do is they give alienated, disenfranchised, impressionable youngsters a sense of belonging and you know that sense of belonging leads to crime sometimes it leads to alienation and all all sorts of things and um you know what what i think we're seeing um you know in terms of um you know any sort of potential radicalization i mean if if anything I, i think it shows that um 
you know, these these people are lone wolves, and they, you know, they're sort of self-radicalizing. You know, we hear the term self-radicalizing, where obviously with the advent of the Internet, um, you know, people can go to YouTube channels and Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and, you know, find anything anything that they want. Um, I think that, you know, the, the Boston case is actually a perfect example of, you know, what Muslim communities can and should do. I mean, as you know, the the mosque, the Islamic Society of Boston, actually kicked out one of the bombers because he started yelling during a Friday sermon that was praising Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you know, those sorts of things, um, you know, show that these sorts of uh, criminal criminal elements, you know, cannot and should not have any place, um, you know, in American institutions. And now, having said that, you know, I, I don't think that the American Muslim community has any more of a responsibility to police our own as any other communities do. I mean, at the end of the day, that we we sadly um, have seen that collective guilt in America after 9-11 applies more to American Muslims than any other demographic group in America, hands down, no question about it, right? You know, when, when, when a white person does a crime or a Christian does a crime, we don't blame all Christians. Uh, when a Jewish person or a black person or a Latino does a crime, we don't blame all of those groups. Mm-hmm. Sadly, when a Muslim commits a crime, their religion first becomes front and center, and it somehow casts, you know, a pall upon all American Muslims. And, and that's something that I think is is, is not only patently antithetical to American values, but um, it really sort of feeds into, you know, the clash of civilizations and narrative that, you know, to many people around the world, oh, well, look, America is, um, you know, is at war with the Islam when it's not. I guess it's, it's one of those things where Europe for, you know, for well over a decade uh, has been struggling with this, uh, you know, with with this this uh, sort of problem of of sort of disaffected, you know, immigrant youth, mostly from North Africa, turning to sort of radical Islam. Whereas here in the United States, you know, it's something that we haven't dealt with, uh, if only for the last couple of years, really. So I'm wondering, is there anything that sort of happened in those intervening years, and in, in sort of the past couple of years, or or again, do you think am I just sort of uh, making this well, up? No, no. I mean, you know, what's happened is that, you know, Muslims are being treated like crap in America today. I mean, let's be honest. You know, there was a a study done a few years ago which showed that the two most despised demographic groups in America today are gays and Muslims. So if you're a gay Muslim, you're doubly screwed. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, when when you – are perceived to be sort of at the lowest rung of the societal totem pole uh, and essentially feel like you're, you know, being just lambasted in in the public sphere. You know, obviously we know, you know, with the election of Barack Obama, I mean, how many times, how many times, Mark, have you and I heard that Barack Obama is a Muslim? You know, just that sentence, Barack Obama is a Muslim. You know, I feel like whenever I hear Barack Obama is a Muslim, that Jerry Seinfeld should pop out and say, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Because it's become a slur in America today, and it became a it became a slur to the point where you know even after the election of Barack Obama, there was nearly thirty percent of the American public who still currently today believe that he's a Muslim, and and, and the fact that there would be anything wrong with that, 
um, you, you know, is it, something that really baffles my mind and, and baffles the mind of many people in this country. So you're, I mean, it seems like you're describing almost this vicious cycle, right? Where you have, uh, and, and I think it's, you document very well that there is, I think objectively you can say an increased sort of Islamophobia or whatever you call it, and it you know, incidents, incidents of hate and, and discrimination, uh, which gives rise to sort of alienation and disaffection, which sort of almost feed off each other in this mm-hmm. sort of an unholy way. Is there, uh, I guess, what strategies can be employed to sort of break that cycle? Well, I mean, that's what I spent my entire life doing, Mark. Is, is to well, let's help talk break- about that. Actually, this this is a good a good inflection point. So, what made you want to get into breaking that cycle? Well, I mean, when I understand when you're sort of a, a kid in suburban Chicago. Well, you know, for me, you know, September 11th, 2001 was 10 days after my 24th birthday. I was a second-year law student at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. And right when 9-11 happened, I'll never forget, I mean, at 9 a.m. that morning, like 14 minutes after it happened, um, I'll never forget uh, at the t- uh, CNN, uh, former CNN anchor Aaron Brown, during the live. I mean, it was it, it was complete chaos and bedlam. And I remember because I watched it live with my own eyes. I remember him saying on air that we have some unconfirmed reports that the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, has claimed responsibility for this act. Now he retracted that statement like a few minutes later, but I knew the da- like it was already done. I knew that you know the, the other rise. Like we, I knew that the Muslim community in America needed to issue blanket and and you know vast condemnations of 9/11. So what I did was, I got on my laptop. I drafted a 1,000-word condemnation editorial, and I sent it to every major uh, newspaper in the country. And within 10 minutes, I got calls from the New York Times, USA Today, Chicago Sun-Times, 20 other papers saying, we're running your piece tomorrow. And so, you know, I, my, my, uh, my editorial was run on September 13th in uh, 2001. And from that day forward, I've probably been giving – you know, 10 radio interviews, five newspaper interviews, and one or two TV interviews a day. And because I understand the need for, you know, for for accurate and objective information in our public media space. You know, obviously the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of global citizens get their information on things that they don't know about from the media. And I, felt, I feel, and I felt for 12 years, and that's why I'll continue to do this work, that my work in the media, you know, is to help and try to, you know, bring a voice and, and be a part of our global conversation and help to advance our human society in a way that is going to be productive, not only for Americans, but for the rest of the world itself. Now, you uh, you went from there to become a, basically a civil rights lawyer. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I am a human rights lawyer by... Um, by training and, and by, I'm a licensed attorney, um, and basically, uh, you know, spent the better part of the Bush administration, you know, dealing with Muslim civil rights issues, and uh, basically now for the last six, seven years now, have you know ventured full time uh, into the media landscape as a weekly commentator on national public radio and writer and things. So like how that. did you? So how did you come up with the, sort of the persona of the Muslim guy? 
You know, I I get asked that question every time. It's a good one. It's a good uh, one. Well, and, and the funniest thing, Mark, is it was actually a joke. It was actually tongue in cheek, and then I tell this story because I, I think it's I think it's kind of hilarious. Um, you know, when I was when I was doing you know when I was doing TV interviews all the time, um, you know during the Bush administration, and I was going on Fox News and CNN and all these places, and it was always you know a conservative, white Republican, and me. And I was always seen as the Muslim guy, and so I thought to myself, like, hey, you know what? Why not? Why not Embrace make it. my? Well, yeah, why not? You know, tongue in cheek. Why not? Why don't? Why not play into that stereotypical trope, and you know, get the website themuslimguy.com, and and that brand has stuck with me ever since, and I and I'm afraid it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. But you know what? I'll take it. So, um, so the, you know, the, the Bush years. I mean, it seems like such a long time ago, uh, but yet yeah. it also seems like yesterday. What? Um, so. Actually, here, here's here's sort of an interesting statistic I, I came across that um, God, I think it was like a Pew poll at some point found that basically before 9/11, most uh-huh. Muslims in America were yeah. Republican, yep. um, and it probably had to do again with like the socioeconomic issues, or, or yeah. maybe even cultural conservatism. I don't even know, but but for, bit, yeah. for, for whatever reason, most uh, you know. But then Bush. Uh, radicalize the uh, the population, or at least make hey, them. hey 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 hey. <laughs> I I I, I, re- I resent as a as a proud Democrat. I resent that. Right, right. Um, uh, but you know, but 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 there was that tipping point, right? And now yes, I think it's was. probably fair to say that most uh, Muslims in America are Democrat. That is correct. When you. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so, so I'm saying, so the, the, I mean, the Bush years were. I mean, was was that just? Um, well, I guess what? How different were the Bush years for the issues that you are working on compared to today? Because frankly, it almost seems as if the sort of scope and, and scale of these incidents that you document are probably worse now than they were back then. Well, no, okay. no nothing was worse than the George W. Bush administration, and, and anybody explain, explain how? I will. I will. I will. I'm getting there. Um, and anybody who says that you know the Obama administration is identical to the George W. Bush administration is just not being intellectually honest. Now, yes, there are things. Well, I'm not, I'm that, not saying that. Well, I guess the point I was making is that these sort of disparate attacks that you're seeing in like Tennessee and all that seem to be um, seem to be sort of more common now than during the previous. No, that's earlier. not true. They they started during the Bush administration. They just weren't, you know, they just didn't get the, the you know, airtime that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are today. I mean, you know, in the first nine months after September 11th, um, you know, there were over 1,700, you know, cases of reported hate crime discrimination, racial profile. I mean, it was bad. I mean, uh, you know, three days after 9-11, uh, I'm sorry, four days after 9-11 on September 15, 2001, was the first hate crime murder, as you know, yeah. who happened not to be a Muslim nor an Arab. It was an Indian Sikh guy. And there were three, actually three other hate crimes and murders on that same day against Arabs and Muslims around the country. I mean, it, like, you know, the problem is that, you know, for, for people who weren't dealing with these issues on September 11th, like I was, like, we tend to view September 11th now as an abstraction, right? It was 12 years ago. It was kind of a blur. We all remember where we were, but we don't really remember the aftermath of it. Sadly, I was part of the aftermath of it. And, um, you know, just I, I basically, Mark, I stopped keeping count of the death threats that I've received after like 500. I mean, I, I, it just, it, it was, it was an everyday occurrence. 
Um, you know, I've had police escorts at speeches of mine. I mean, it's been, you know, shit's been real. Yeah, I, mean, I would imagine you're, you're probably still getting threats every every now and again. Yeah, it's gotten better, but I mean, I mean, so yeah, what about? What about yeah, from like a, from from a, a sort of a public policy perspective, right? From mm-hmm. sort of how the federal government, how the Justice Department interacted with key leaders in in Muslim communities in America in the Bush administration versus how that interaction is occurring today. Is there sort of a difference? Is 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 was one more hostile than the other? Um, that's a very good question. And the answer is basically the Bush administration was very successful in marginalizing the American Muslim community so much that essentially the that essentially President Obama to this day has not set foot inside an American mosque. I mean that's a big so, deal. So you're saying it was it was like a you're saying it was a deliberate sort of policy of conscious demonization. Absolutely. Absolutely. What were some of like the um like what's what's sort of your evidence? Like like what do you uh, what do you point big, to? Big, big, uh, well I can point to a lot of things. I can point to former Attorney General John Ashcroft who once said on record to syndicated columnist Cal Thomas that uh Christianity is a religion where God sent his son to die for you and Islam is a religion where you have to send your son to die for God. We have the former uh, spiritual advisor to President George W. Bush, Franklin Graham, who in a November 2001 broadcast of NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw said on the air that he believes that, quote, Islam is a wicked and evil religion. When Brokaw gave him a chance to actually retract his statement, he not only did not retract, he's actually doubled down on it several times since then. Uh, and the list goes on and on. I mean, these are two, I mean, these are people at the, I mean, the Attorney General of the freaking United States, yeah. you know, is, is saying that about Islam. You have the spiritual advisor to the president of the United States saying that Islam is a wicked and evil religion. I mean, I could spend the entire 45 minutes talking about the Islamophobia that came out of the Bush administration. Well, what about, I, I guess, in, as, as that, as those um, sort of, as, as those sort of hurtful and, and, and harmful words translated into policy, like, did the Justice Department pursue uh, sort of unfairly sort of members of the Muslim community. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, right now we, we're hearing about, you know, the uh, the IRS that, you know, conservative groups feel like they were unfairly targeting, uh, you know, conservative groups uh, for tax-exempt status. Well, I didn't hear them say one peep when American Muslim organizations were not just targeted. We, they were summarily shut down, assets frozen with no due process at all, basically bankrupting over a dozen major American Muslim organizations without a day in court, nobody said boo then. You know, again, there, there is a double standard here, and, and it seems as though right-wing conservative groups seem to get a free pass, and they get all the media outrage. But when it's, you know, a bunch of brown Muslim people, there's no media outrage to be had. And so now, you know, fast forward to, to the Obama administration, is that same, has that dissipated at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, you know, there could literally be, literally be no worse presidential administration uh, for the American Muslim community or really any minority communities, in my opinion, than the Bush administration. Now, in the Obama administration, yes, you know, the Guantanamo Bay has not been closed. Yes, drone, the drone, drone program does exist. There are, there are troubling aspects of the Obama administration, which I do not agree with. I have not agreed with. Um, but it's, you know, I'd rather have President Obama 
in the White House a million times over President Bush. Is there, I'm wondering, you know, this is something I've been thinking about. If, um, for example, like, uh, you know, or here's something, just just thinking sort of back when Madeleine Albright discovered her Jewish roots. Yes. And that was like something that was like celebrated and discussed and people were like, yeah. And she's like, yeah. And and everyone was was excited (laughs) about it. And rightfully so. Yeah, and whereas you know, um, you know, legitimately, Obama has you know Muslim roots, and it, they're like you know they're they're it's not even something that is, uh, you know, it's something that's that's obviously like deliberately shunned, and you know, is there angst among sort of you know in in the Muslim community, you know, based on that, like, come on, like you could be a leader if if you wanted to be like, yeah, we know you're Christian. Obviously everyone knows you're Christian, but you know, like you do have a family history there that you could embrace. No, I mean, it's, I'm not even getting to that point. I mean, he, he wouldn't even touch the American Muslim community with a 10 foot pole during his campaign. Because again, like I said, being a Muslim in America had become a slur. You know, there's a reason that these, these whisper campaigns of Barack being a crypto Muslim Manchurian candidate were going around because yeah. they knew that it, it played to the American public. It played so much, Mark, that in June 2008, a mere five months before the election in Detroit at an Obama rally, two Muslim women in hijab and a headscarf were actually pulled out of an Obama photo opportunity by Obama campaign volunteers themselves. So that insinuation had become so toxic that even our own Obama campaign pulled those two Muslim women out of that photo opportunity, lest any right-wingers use that as, you know, fodder for their claims. And so, you know, I, you know, whereas Madeleine Albright celebrating her roots was, you know, celebrated, you know, Obama and the word Muslim were, you know, try, they tried to distance themselves from anything related to Muslims, let alone anything about, you know, who his family is. I mean, it's, it, it, it got to absurd levels. Um, yeah, and, and I remember arguably like the most absurd op-ed I've ever read in the New York Times was written uh, around that time in, in 2008 during the 08 campaign by Edward Lutwak, who's like, you know, generally yeah. considered like a pretty decent international relations scholar who somehow got into his head that, um, you know, he could interpret Islamic jurisprudence in such a way that exactly. he thought that he – thought that, um, Obama's the fact that Obama has a father who is Muslim, even though he's a practicing Christian, would make him would make sort of Muslim countries considered him an apostate and not want to deal with him. Yeah, I, I mean, like Saudi Arabia is not going to sell oil to, to America. No, but, not even that. You know, but basically, you, yeah. you had you had Ludwig, who's an American military strategist. Yeah, basically, you know, getting you know getting space on the New York Times editorial page to basically turn into an Islamic theologian. Yeah, I mean, if that's not hackery at its worst, I don't know what is. That still but, stands out as the single dumbest op-ed I've ever read in the New York Times. And yeah. It, but 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 you yeah. can you can you can imagine the damage that things I mean and that that was from somebody who was respected by by some circles and of course in the in the newspaper of record so of course the right wingers are going to love it because hey look the liberal New York Times even published an op-ed saying that he is. Um, what's your uh, sort of take on? I hate asking. I'm like asking you like you're representative of all the Muslim communities sort of in America. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure you get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is your personal take on the, 
you know, on, on sort of the effect and which sort of uh, U.S. foreign policy under the Obama administration, the drone wars uh, in particular, uh, have, um, you know, ha- or how have you responded to that? Uh, you know, and, and how have sort of the, the Muslim leaders that you talk to, that you interact with, sort of respond to that? How, you know, are is there um, any sort of sort of sense, is there any sort of feedback mechanism by which uh, Muslim leaders in America can help influence foreign policy in sort of any meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the first thing that President Obama did that was, you know, obviously markedly different than George W. Bush was, you know, we all remember his famous 2009 address at Cairo University to the Muslim world. I mean that was a that was a game changer that that was something you know that was an outreach that that was outreach done to the Muslim world that had not been done at all in the previous eight years when we were fighting two wars in predominantly Muslim nations. Um, you know the first uh, international television interview that President Obama gave was to Al Arabiya uh, News Network. I mean that was uh, you know an, another. In terms of outreach that that the Obama administration has done, you know, sadly, most of the outreach that the Obama administration has done to Muslims is actually international and not domestic. Like I said, he hasn't even set foot inside an American mosque yet, and because of he knows because of the fact that his campaign and his administration knows how it will play with the American public with the you know whisper campaigns rising up again. So all the outreach has been done at the international level. Um, you know, obviously, you know, ending the war in Iraq, drawing, you know, bringing down uh, troop levels in Afghanistan, you know, ending torture, uh, you know, obviously were all things that were, you know, seen as positive uh, developments. But Guantanamo Bay is still, you know, the albatross around our American neck. Um, you know, it's still seen uh, by many people around the world, not just in the Muslim world, all around the world, um, you know, as, as you know, the stain on our, you know, quote-unquote democratic constitutional system. Um, you know, I'm not getting into the drone wars. That's a whole other, you know, topic that uh, I disagree with and many people disagree with as well, uh, especially the targeting of American citizens. But, you know, it's... As I told people, it's going to take a lot of time to undo eight years of George W. Bush. And so what's so what's next for you? What's next for for the Muslim guy? Are you still <laughs> still doing your thing? Still? Uh, yeah, man. I mean, sadly, you know, I have to deal with global political firestorms, uh, whether real or invented, and so whether it's um, you know a war happening halfway around the world or um, you know failed or failed bombing attempts here and the aftermath of that um you know i'm going to continue to try and serve as a as a muslim voice to the general american public uh you know let americans know that you know we we muslims are um you know as part and parcel of american society you know people don't know that um People don't know that, you know, there were Muslims that were injured in the Boston Marathon bombing. There was a Saudi female doctor who was injured. There were Muslim runners in the in the Boston Marathon. Um, you know, this was an attack on our country, and it was an indiscriminate attack on our country. It was an attack on people of all faiths mm-hmm. uh, and all races and, and nationalities. And, uh, you know, we need to, you know, come together at, that, at this time and, and, you know, make, One. make this country a better place for your your comment made me think of one last thing i wanted to talk to you about 
if you have a couple more minutes. Sure. Uh, the, and for, for some reason, this bothers me more than more than most of the incidents of uh, discrimination and hate crimes you document is the uh, anti-Sharia laws that oh, state geez. governments have have voted for. There have been several state governments yeah. uh, in the U.S. that have voted in these. That they're really nothing, nothing but sort of legislating hate, like literally. Legislating well, not hate, only legislating it, hate, but they are. I mean, it is. Um, it's a fallacy. You know, anybody who says that Islamic Sharia law is coming to take over America has not read right. Article, Article 6, Clause 2, which is known as the Supremacy Clause of the United States Constitution, which says that the Constitution shall be, quote, the supreme law of the land, and that nothing can supersede that. So anybody who says that Sharia is coming to take over America should not only not be allowed to hold public office, they should retroactively fail ninth grade civics class. But, again, because there is so much anti-Muslim sentiment in America today, you know, people can say, you know, Islamic Sharia law is, is coming to a neighborhood near you, so watch out for, you know, falafel food carts, you know, on your street corners. It's, it's it, I mean, it, it just, it, 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 what I guess annoys me the most about, about these and perturbs me is just the fact that, again, these are elected legislators who are acting on nothing but ignorance and fear and, frankly, probably political opportunism as well. That they are well, literally exploiting well, the darkest corners of our, you know, of, 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 of our society for their political gain. And it's, it's just like it's, it's so ugly. No, it is, and, and what most people don't understand, and this is where, you know, interface work, you know, I'm a big interface junkie, I remember, you know, I, 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 when I was with you last time, I think we saw each other was at the Sixth and I Historic Synagogue yeah. in D.C., but, um, you know, what most people don't know, for example, in Florida, the anti-Sharia legislation that they are considering uh, would actually also probably ban Jewish divorces under halakhic law, um, and so, you know, this is a time where people of all faiths need to band together, because what they, what they, what these, uh, what these idiots do is is they don't they don't explicitly state Sharia law in these pieces of legislation. They quote foreign law, right? Yeah. Foreign religious laws, things like that. And so, you know, that you know people who keep kosher or keep halal, you know, could you know be potentially impacted by this as well. I mean, we in America have a long legal tradition. We we allow uh, many religious traditions to deal with civil some civil some civil matters, uh, you know, according to. Uh, you know, there, there are Jewish courts, uh, you know, in New York, um, you know, that deal with inter-community uh, issues, and, and rightfully so. And so, you know, this is not – again, I always tell people, as a civil rights lawyer, the protection of the civil rights of one American is the protection of the civil rights of all Americans. And so that's why, you know, I speak up if I ever hear of anti-Semitism or homophobia or anything, because I understand that we as Americans need to stand up for each other, because if we don't, then there's no going to be nobody there to stand up for us when we need them. Well, Arsalan, you have your work cut out for you. I think we all have our work cut out for us. Um, Indeed. But thank you so much for, for speaking with me. It was my pleasure, Mark. Well, that was super interesting. Uh, you should definitely follow Arsalan's work at themuslimguy.com. Uh, one of my big takeaways, yeah, it's just so deeply uh, shameful that Obama has yet to set foot in an American mosque. Uh, I mean, really, like, you know, the election's behind him. You know, if that was the, the underlying concern, I mean, get over it. 
I think as, you know, if you're hearing from Arsalan, it would be a pretty uh, important show of solidarity with a uh, religious minority in the United States that is the on the receiving end of some pretty uh, oppressive uh, discrimination. And it's time that, you know, we all need to do our work to reverse that trend. Anyway, uh, let's uh, keep this conversation going. Hit me up on Twitter or on email. Until then, I will see you next week. Bye.